Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. You wake up one morning and you take your customary stroll down a Jerusalem high street. As you wander down the street, you pick up fruit, you chat to market traders, and you think how peaceful life has been for the last few weeks. It's been five weeks since Jesus has been arrested and crucified, and while you're not sure that you agreed with the decision, a peaceful life is pretty good, and you know, above all things, the Romans were not to be messed with. As you wander down the street, you look further down and see a crowd has gathered, and your interest is aroused, so you begin to walk closer and you hear languages from all over the place. Now Jerusalem's a cosmopolitan city, so that's not unusual in itself, but a crowd like this, well, well, that is unusual. As you get closer, you start to recognize some faces, some of the men that have been conspicuous by their absence the last few weeks, some of the earliest followers of Jesus, they're there in the center of the crowd, and they're the ones that are shouting excitedly, and as you get close enough, one of them comes up to you, someone that you know well, and he begins to tell you over and over again, he's not dead, he is risen, he is alive, and something, your heart leaps and catches in your throat, because you begin to ask this question, what does that mean? You know for certain that Jesus died, the Romans, these invaders, they made mistakes of, of justice. Sure, if a few innocent people had to die for peace, they, they didn't mind, but mistakes of execution, never. No, Jesus was definitely dead. But how do you explain these people? You know resurrection doesn't happen, and yet these people should be running or hiding, but here they are in the street recruiting, shouting over and over again, Jesus is alive. He is not dead. He is risen. And you're left with this question. What does that mean? Does that mean that the story is true? And if the story is true, well, then what would that mean? Is Jesus really alive? You can sit down. Thanks for standing with me all that time. Welcome, friends. It's great to have you here on Easter Sunday. If you are in church for the first time in a year, then that's a wonderful thing. If you have tears coming to your eyes because you're back in community, then there's nothing wrong with that. This is our third service of the morning. The first one involved us all getting up at like 5.45 or something like that. But I can say without doubt that you guys are my favorite service. Um, And I've said that on camera to the people at home as well. You guys are my favorite service. Uh, And if we've not worked out any glitches by now, Uh, We should have had a chance. It's simply incompetence that is causing glitches at this point. What does this mean? We're starting in an unusual place. We're starting five weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection. We're starting in this book called Acts. It's, for those of you that are not from a church background, it's it's one of the early texts. It's, It's how the church figured out how they were a church. And as this crowd gathers and begins to yell that Jesus is alive and people start to question it, we're told this, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Amazed and perplexed. On a morning like Easter Sunday, I'd suggest there's probably people from all, in all sorts of places. Some of you would say you're not following Jesus on a journey. We have a vision that says we want to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And if you're honest, you'd say... That's not me, and and that's fine. Maybe you came because someone asked you to come. 
all the way through to people who've been following Jesus for 60, 70, 80 years. In amongst us, there's probably people in all sorts of different places. Maybe you would describe yourself as actively agnostic. Yeah, you're here because someone asked you, but you're, you're trying to maybe figure it out a little bit, but, but you're just not sure about whether Jesus is who he said he is and about faith in general. Maybe there's another group of us that would describe ourselves as, as seasonally spiritual. We get into this thing at Easter, we have these rhythms that we pick it up every now and again, but, but it's not consistent. And again, no judgment, that's fine, life is busy. And then there's a group of you that might say, well, I'm continually committed, I'm always around, and this is just a place that I call home. Across that spectrum, these two words maybe impact us differently. Maybe some of us think about resurrection and we would say, I'm amazed. I believe this thing happened and it's captivating. Maybe others of us would say, I'm a little perplexed. I'm not sure, I'm trying to figure it out. But regardless, that question, what does this mean, probably impacts all of us, maybe in different ways, but it's probably relevant to all of us. Resurrection is this huge idea. If it's real, it changes everything. A few years ago, I uh, had a friend who, who called me accidentally. I got one of the classic butt dials, and because my name begins with A, I get these fairly frequently. If you don't know an Adam or an Aaron, then it's probably going to come through to Alex. And so I got this call, and it happens a lot. Usually I listen in to make sure they're not talking about me. Uh, I'm very narcissistic, I grant you. And then I listen in to make sure that if I can catch any news that's you know, available. And I know I'm tapping into some of your deep fears because every single one of you has had moments in life where you looked at your phone and said, please say I didn't call someone in this embarrassing moment. But uh, this one was different. In that moment, it was a co-worker that called me, and I picked up the phone, and all I could hear on the phone was, no, please, no, 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 please, no, no. And my adrenaline shut up. I thought, is she in trouble? Does she need help? Am I supposed to do something? Uh, and yet I knew the person that she was with, and they'd just been with me. And then I thought, well, they're both co-workers, they now work for me, maybe, maybe it's a prank, maybe they're just trying to wind me up. And then when she called me back later, what I found out was that I'd actually heard her right after receiving a call that her dad had passed away. It was the heartbreak, the anguish that so many of you have been through, maybe this year, maybe during COVID, maybe in the past, or you certainly will in the future. What I heard was her begging that in this instance, in this particular case, could death please work backwards? Could it reverse itself and, and could it not be true? And if you've been there, man, my heart aches for you. But every single one of us will deal with that at some point. That's why resurrection is such a vital subject. And when these earliest followers of Jesus began to grab hold of the significance of his resurrection, they started to sketch out for the next few years, well, what does it mean then? What, what, how broad is it? And what are metaphors that we can use to explain it? So what I'd love us to do for our time together, and the creative team said to me, you have 25 minutes, and I usually get 40, so it's going to take some work, and I'm going to talk fast, and we'll get through this together. But, but we're going to sketch out some images of the beauty and the joy of resurrection and what it meant. And to do that, I'm gonna rely mainly on stories and images in the hopes that when you take them away, those are the things that stick. So we started in Pentecost Sunday, five weeks from today, we're gonna to backtrack to start with. And we're gonna ask ourselves about Good Friday, this day that we just celebrated, and I want you to use your imagination again. You're one of Jesus' earliest followers. 
You've been with him on Thursday when he's been arrested. You spent the night pretty sleepless, and the next morning, Friday, you hear there's going to be an execution. You grab a sword and hide it under your cloak, but really, what are you going to do? You versus a whole bunch of Romans, and the crowd that seemed so in favor of Jesus last week is now firmly against him. You don't want to get too close to the front because you might be recognized, but you, you don't want to be too far away because you love Jesus. You've spent three years with him, and he's important to you. And as you stand there, you think about the the celebration you've just had that week. It's been this festival called Passover, where you have remembered how there was this time your ancestors desperately needed God to, to do something, and he did. Death literally passed over those thousand years ago, and you begin to ask, could this happen for Jesus? Because Jesus is good in a way that you've you've never met before. Could death pass over for him? And then you watch as his breathing becomes slower and more labored. And then you listen, as with his final breath, he cries out one word, tetelestai. What does he mean, finished? Does he mean he is finished? Does he mean death is coming? Does he mean the plan, the the idea is finished? Does he mean that the hope that you'd had, the dreams that you'd sort of dreamed together, the idea that the world could be a better place, you didn't understand him always granted, but it always was so compelling. Does it mean that that is over? And, And yeah, that seems true without Jesus. It is over. There is no hope. But then you think about the tone of his voice. He doesn't seem defeated. He seems like he thinks he accomplished something. And you start to think about that word, finished, complete. One of the early metaphors that the church used to talk about death and resurrection was this idea of finished. This is John, one of Jesus' biographers, one of his earliest followers, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. For the earliest followers of Jesus, his death and resurrection meant freedom from past guilt, from the weight of their own history that they carried all the time, the sense that every single one of us has this thing, this inner voice that says, I'm not okay. I feel like I might not make it. If I had to weigh good and bad in the scales, maybe I could throw some good in there, but there'd also be some bad. And and does that even matter? If God is completely good, how do I stack up to this completely good God? They tapped into this sense of guilt that was already present in the people that they were talking to. And they said, Jesus' death and his resurrection, this is the answer to that. He came that, that that debt might be paid. And again, I'll ask you to use your imagination. Imagine you're a man or a woman with a business dream. Your dream is to send people into space, to have them stay on a hotel where they can see the ice caps and the deserts at the same time. And that would seem ridiculous 20 years ago. But now we're like, oh, we could seriously be talking about this soon. And so you happen to know the right combination of people with money and people with a science background. And you work together and the dream looks like it's about to come true. The rich and famous line up to jump in on your project. They want to go and experience what you're offering. And then right before the end, disaster strikes. One of your final unmanned flights explodes. One of your scientists that did some of the key research confesses he he actually can't do what he said he was going to do. You find out that as many financial people are betting against you as betting betting for you. And then you find out that the government is investigating your work. And even worse, they'd like to help with the project. Little, Little government joke for you there from the least political person in the room. In that moment, you say, what do I do about this 
situation. You mortgage your house, and because the Denver real estate market is crazy, you get $500,000 to be able to begin to pay back the loan, and you come up with this plan that you'll work for the next 40 years, and you'll pay back a quarter of a million dollars a year. But you know the plan is ridiculous. You could work for 40, 50, 20 lifetimes, and, and, and you wouldn't be able to pay back this money. As you stand in the elevator, going up to see one of your main financial backers, you, you practice over and again this speech trying to explain to them what you're going to do. And as you walk into the office, you're surprised that she's smiling. And as you begin to outline your plan, she she says, what do you mean, repay the money? I'm a venture capitalist. I take risks. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. There's, There's no debt to repay. And as you begin to offer her the check from the house sale, she says, oh, no, I bought the loan from the bank this morning. Here's the note. And she tears it up and she hands it to you. She asks how you've lived for the last few weeks, how you've survived with no money, and you tell her about the the kids' school payments that you've put on credit cards and how you've built up more and more debt, and she says, how much has it cost? And she pulls out a checkbook and says, I'm going to write a number on here. Tell me how much it really cost. And then she says, well, I'm going to add a little more on the end just to make sure I cover it. And then as you begin to walk out, unable to believe how your life has changed in the last few minutes, she says, oh, by the way, When you're ready to make the project work, make sure you come back to us for the money. We still believe in you and what you're doing. Now, of course, this story isn't reality because that's not how finance works. And it's not even real allegory. It doesn't picture directly what Jesus did. It's a story that's meant to tap into the extraordinariness of forgiveness. For the earliest followers of Jesus, when they thought about what death and resurrection meant, they said it was freedom from the debts of the past. You are free from everything that you would hold against yourself. This is this writer Paul, one of Jesus' early followers, writing to a church in a town called Colossae. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. They thought about freedom from the burdens of guilt that we all carry. Those things that you know lurk somewhere in your heart. But something more. When they talked about what Jesus' death and resurrection meant, they talked about the idea, the possibility of transformation in the present. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As they looked for a word that would help them capture everything Jesus had done, the word they landed on was metamorphosis. The same word that we use to describe this process. Now, this is usually where some really smart person comes up to me after the service or drops me an email and says, well, that type of caterpillar wouldn't turn into that type of butterfly. And you may be technically right, I don't know, but you are missing the point, perhaps. There is this process that happens here where a caterpillar wraps itself in a cocoon and its body literally disintegrates. I always thought it just sprouted wings or something like that, but no, 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 it breaks down and it reforms as something else. When the early followers of Jesus tried to sketch out what does death and resurrection meant, they said it means that you can be transformed into a different person because of that process. And if you're a kid here in the room, we would love to give you a caterpillar when you leave in the hope that it will turn into a butterfly. And I say hope because we do not guarantee this. And if any of you kids try and come and ask me for your money back, well, you didn't pay anything, so you're not getting any money out of me, 
but hopefully it does become a butterfly. Hopefully it does do this transformation thing if you tend for it and care for it. Well, I'm going to put the responsibility on you. And if it doesn't work, it's because you did it wrong. But, but the thing that Jesus offers, that is guaranteed. That is something he says. No, this will happen the moment you decide to walk into life with Jesus, the moment you take what he did, that death and resurrection, and say, God, would you let that apply to me? He offers new life, this instant, instant once and for all transformation. It was new freedom from the past debts that you carried, but it was also new life in the present. But not just as a one-off thing. One of the things the earliest followers of Jesus sketched out was that, well, well, this was a continual present and a continual transformation. This is the same guy, Paul, in the letter to a church in Rome. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. It's that continual, present, changing thing. And we wanted to tap into this idea through story. And so we thought, who better to pick, for those of you that know South well, than our good friend, Carolyn Schmidt, who couldn't be here today, uh, but is here in presence on video and in spirit and all those different things. I didn't just pick her because she's old. Uh, than I am, but I picked her because her story has this beautiful poignancy, and th there's a full 30 minutes video online, you can watch it if you like to, Aaron with his magical skills managed to cut it down to five, so here we go. So Carolyn, thank you for sitting down and talking to us, and for those of you that don't know, Carolyn is, uh, is a, just a long time member, I don't want to tell everyone how long, you can tell everyone how long. 67 years. 67 years, member of South, and and went through COVID and was in hospital and we had moments, I had moments where I was like, wow, I'm not sure whether I'll get to see you walk in the building again. And to see you walk in my office today was just such a, a joy and relief. And with it being Easter, we wanted to talk about this idea of, of renewal, oh. um, of how God incredibly brings life out of death as we're talking about this Easter. He creates uh, gardens out of graves. We said we'd start with just some history. Um, like the beginning. Ancient what? history? Wow, <laughs> middle history. <laughs> what, what, what did the beginning look like for, for you? Family life for me was um, by the time I was 12 years old, both my parents were dead and both of my paternal grandparents were dead. At one time or another, I have lived in at least 15 different places with sometimes changes of complete family unit, all within the blood relatives, but for what a variety of reasons and finally was split up from my sister when I was 10 years old, six months before my mom died in New Mexico and I moved back to Denver to live with the aunt and uncle there. And neighbors of ours uh, introduced me to South Presbyterian Church at 1700 South Grant and then as I got older went by myself, my daughter one time said she never realized what it must have been like to go to a church by yourself as a kid come home by yourself to abuse from uh, the aunt who hated anything to do with church. Sometimes we think that the Jesus story and his work in us is this one-off event. It's just oh, a... Never. No. And, and it seems like you've seen this pattern in your life. It's oh, this constant bringing constant life out renewal. of death. Well, it's like this scrap quilt. <laughs> and it's not that each scrap has a history, 
but there's darks and there's lights in it mm. if you can see it. Yeah. And I put it together because I thought, well, my mind operates like that. No, my whole life has been hmm. like that. <laughs> On April 2nd, 2008, my husband died of pneumonia that went into septicemia. We had no warning, no nothing. He got sick on April 1st, wound up in the hospital. He was gone the next morning, 24 hours. Well, I have been an orphan and now a widow and a not so docile lamb <laughs> and utterly dependent on my Lord. Mm. That's what this was, utterly dependent in, in the hospital. And so then, then the staff started calling it miracle, miracle, miracle. And so here I am just thinking, what do it, what, what now? Yeah, that, what I now? mean, that, that's an incredible. What happens as a result of a miracle? I, I was talking to one of the, uh, the nurses. I said, Anna, what do I do now? And she says, you go on doing exactly what you're doing. Wow. Get on with loving people. So we're, we're sitting here in spirit on Resurrection Sunday. Yes. Which is the highest day of the year. It's this wonderful moment of joy. And um, so, so just for a second, just share with us as a community, what, does, what do the words Resurrection Sunday and what does the day mean? For us, it's a resurrection, a renewal of delighting ourselves in the Lord. Mm and recognizing it's not that he's giving us the desires of our heart, he is the desire wow. of our heart. I love it. Taking delight in being on any, any morning, every morning I wake up is potentially a resurrection. And at this point for me right now, I am going back and seeing it all. And I mean all, the hard stuff, the loss, everything is pure gift. And the fact is, the resurrection would not have been possible except for the ugliness of what Jesus went through for us. Hmm. Resurrection only happens where there's death. We're talking about graves into gardens, right? It's the seed that's planted, it has to go in and it has to die and it springs out to new life. I hope that what I leave behind for everybody I know is somebody who loved the Lord and loved them. It seems like a good good wish, a good dream, good uh, thing to chase. And that is a resurrection. And you come right down to it for every morning to be praying that. Thanks so much, Carolyn. So good to have you here. some of the language there every day has the possibility of resurrection she talked about the good the bad and how God was weaving this tapestry that's what it looks like for life not to just be about transformation once forever but transformation to be continual this partnership that's go that goes on and on it's almost like God in his love for us said transformation is fun why don't you and I do that in your life together for a long time. This is the process that you're invited into in death and resurrection, but not just individual either. 
For this whole world, this is this continual process that seems to go on and on and on. My wife has this best friend that she's never, ever met. She loves Joanna Gaines from Fixer Upper. Um, Because I'm annoying, um, (laughs) I regularly make out like I don't like them at all, when in actual fact I think they're great, and she just rolls her eyes, which is normal, right? Every half-decent guy has a great woman behind him rolling his eyes. Uh, And so she will talk about just the wonders that you see, and I just think what they do is amazing. You see old, and then you see what is possible, and the new. Our friend AJ Reese, who's a part of our community, uh, he sent me a couple of pictures of of a kitchen he was working on this last couple of weeks. You see old, and then you see new, and you talk about life coming out of old things into new things. It's like God in his love for us said, I long to see transformation in you. Yes, once and forever, like a butter, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, but also continual. When the first followers of Jesus talked about resurrection, they talked about, yes, freedom from the guilt of the past and transformation in this continual presence that you were invited into. But for the first thousand years, one of the predominant metaphors that often gets forgotten today is the idea that Jesus was victor over death. That Jesus' death was a victory that every single one of us needed because deep in our own hearts, there is this fear of this ultimate reality that we all at some point must face. I remember as a child getting on a bus every day and going to school, and the school bus drove past a graveyard. And for some reason, instinctively as a young child, what I would do was I would get to the point where the graveyard started, and I would hold my breath. That was terrible on the days where the traffic backed up. (laughs) Two and a half minutes, I'm like, this bus really needs to move. But there was something instinctual in me that said, I don't like this thing. It was my own childish equivalent of whistling past the graveyard. As the earliest followers of Jesus sketched out what this meant, they said they tapped into this this proverb idea, death and the grave are never satisfied. It affects every single one of us. That's why resurrection is such a big subject because it affects us all and it taps into our ancient story. For those of you unfamiliar with the Bible, the first story in the Bible is about a man and a woman and a garden. It's about relationship with God. We don't have time to go into the whole thing, but it's there and it's part of our history. This first man, through his own brokenness, through his own failure, broke that relationship and changed his own life forever. And doing so changed ours too. When you look back into this book, Genesis, which means beginnings, we see Adam took a garden. And I was going to pick an English garden, but it is Master's Week coming up. So I picked the wonderful Augusta National Golf Course. And some of you people that love golf can just picture yourself there and know that you'll never get there. Um, But... (laughs) We all have to suffer. Adam takes a garden and he turns it into a grave. He takes a garden and he turns it into a grave. And that affects every single one of us for all time. And as these early followers of Jesus started to realize the magnitude of what Jesus had done and what resurrection meant, this all connects together. This is one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus in this book, John. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Notice that it's the women that get there first. The men were still sat on a couch somewhere trying to figure what to do next. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked a woman, why are you crying? 
They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This first Adam, this man back in Genesis, takes a garden and he turns it into a grave. And in this wonderful symmetry, the reverse happens here. She thought he was the gardener. And maybe in some weird way she isn't wrong about that. In the same way Adam takes a garden and turns it into a grave, Jesus takes a grave and he turns it into a garden. This place that is about death becomes this place that is about life. Jesus took a grave and turned it into a garden. For the first hundreds of years of church life, one of the central ideas and metaphors was about the fact that Jesus had been victorious over death. It's why I love the fact that different churches around the, the world, specifically Greek Orthodox churches, will say over and over again on Easter or Pasha, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death on those in the tombs bestowing life. This early metaphor was the idea that Jesus, when he looked defeated, only looked defeated. It only seemed that way, but what we were waiting for was the ultimate come backstory. It was like Muhammad Ali sat on the ropes for eight rounds against Joe Frazier, and then there's that moment where he says, is that all you've got? And he starts punching back. It's like my beloved Detroit Red Wings losing in 1996, then coming back and literally wiping the floor with the Colorado Avalanche in 1997. <laughs> it's this idea that you haven't seen this coming. The thing that looked like the end was not the end. The thing that looked like death was not death. The thing that looked like a grave was not a grave it was just simply it just simply seemed that way and for hundreds of years this idea of Jesus as the victor of death was the thing that remained central this is a picture of Jesus standing on the gates of hell in his resurrection in one hand he holds Adam in the other hand he holds Eve symbol symbolically every single one of us and says death does not affect you in the same way anymore that is the stark claim of resurrection there is new life offered this is an unknown writer to a group called the hebrews since the children have flesh and blood he too shared in their humanity so that by their death by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death this is Paul again to this same church in Rome, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? If you're a child and you've never read it, get your parents to read the Chronicles of Narnia with you. This is the Lion Aslan. You can watch the movie if you want. It's not as good, but the, the book is the, the key. This is Aslan the lion who represents Jesus in this allegory. The witch would have known that when a willing victim had committed no treachery, was killed in a trader's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start 
working backwards. Think about my friend. Think about your own heart. Think about that cry, oh, please no, please no. Could death please work backwards? The resurrection is the promise that one day death will indeed work backwards. For uh, hundreds and thousands of years, that was the central metaphor of the church. Christ is victorious of the, over death. And when you in your grief and I in our grief place flowers on a tomb and watch them wilt, we're speaking to the idea that one day those flowers might take root in the ground, that a garden may shoot up from a grave, that new life will be possible in the face of death. That's the ridiculous, audacious claim of the Christian church for hundreds of years. Resurrection says that the worst thing isn't the last thing about the world. It's the next to the last thing. The last thing is the best thing. It's the power from on high that comes down into the world, that wells up from the rock bottom, worst of the world, like a hidden spring. Can you believe it? The last best thing is the laughing deep in the heart of the saints. Sometimes our hearts even, yes, you are terribly loved and forgiven. Yes, you are healed. All is well. The story of resurrection is the one day that in the midst of this brokenness in the world, one day we'll gather together in resurrection and we will laugh about it together. The idea of the early church writers was not that Jesus had given us new freedom from past debts, not that he had just given us new life in this continual present, but there was this hope in the future that was transformative. It was centered around altogether the idea that God is alive and he is loose in the world and that might change everything. What does this mean? Whether you are stuck in the past Whether you feel broken in the present or you are fearful of the future, the invitation of resurrection is into this story. It is not the idea that sad stories have good endings. It's the idea that sad stories with Jesus and his resurrection have the possibility of new beginnings. Can you believe this? That's what we're invited into this Easter. The possibility that this Jesus took a grave and he turned it into a garden. That is worth celebrating. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org/give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South Family. Have a great rest of your day.